The Deviation Podcast. Welcome to the Deviation Podcast. My name is Paige, and I am really excited to say that Kirstie Ennis is here with me today. If you haven't already Googled her, which you should because you'll understand why I'm so excited, um, she's a Marine sergeant who served as a helicopter door gunner and airframes, airframes mechanic. She founded the Kirstie Ennis Foundation. She has three master's degrees. She's pursuing her doctorate. She's a Hollywood stunt woman. She was People Magazine's annual body image hero, ESPN's body issue cover, is in the process of summiting all of the highest peaks in the world. Oh, and by the way, she's doing all of this on one leg um, due to a helicopter crash in Afghanistan on her second deployment. And I would go on more, but um, I think she should, she should tell the rest of her story. <laughs> well, thanks for such an amazing introduction. Um, listening to you uh, share that with everybody definitely makes me think that I have a severe form of ADD (laughs) and I've just figured out how to channel it. Um, No, yeah, super excited and um, thanks for wanting to to share my story. Hopefully people hear it and they get super stoked like like you are. Um, I don't really know how they couldn't, but I'm right there with you. (laughs) So... um, do you want to just kind of start from the beginning, where you grew up, and then we'll work our way into all of the really cool things you're doing now? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, well, I don't know, don't know where I really grew up, I guess, when it's all said and done. I was raised by two Marine parents, uh, so we bounced around my whole life. Um, I lived in something like 15 different states as a kid, was changing schools once every, like, six months. Um Jeez. So on one hand, I feel like I'm very fortunate that I got all sorts of experiences uh, growing up, everything from living in an RV in a, a trailer park to you know living in houses and barracks and the whole nine. Um, but yeah, I just grew up idolizing my parents. I, I thought it was so cool that my mom and my dad got up every day and, and put on the uniform. To me, they were... They were my superheroes, and I was so proud. Um, And I just knew that I wanted to join the Marine Corps and give them a reason to be proud of me like I was proud of them, basically. And I love that. (laughs) Thanks. Um, But it's funny, like, my mom and my dad got married at 18. Dad joined the Marine Corps right off the bat. Um, They were stationed out on the East Coast in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, for a little while, and then... They moved to Mount to 29 Palms over in California, and um, I came came along somewhere somewhere in between. And at 27 years old, my mom comes home and tells my dad, you know, I think these female Marines are pretty badass. And my dad looks at my mom and says, I will never be married to a female Marine. So my mom turns around, leaves, gets an age waiver, and joins the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> Solely out of spite. So, oh my gosh. you know, I grew up watching, you know, my dad do the Marine thing, you know, my whole life. And then, you know, I remember my mom walking across the parade deck, graduating boot camp. So exposed to it from, from different angles. And yeah, I, I knew I wanted to follow in their footsteps and 
and do what they did basically. Um, were they happy about that or not so much? Oh man. Uh, <laughs> um, my mom was like a good riddance. See you later. I was not the best child, never anything malicious, but a super mischievous child. Too smart for my own good for the most part. Uh, so she was, you know, get out. We'll see you later. <laughs> Can't wait. My dad like begged and pleaded with me not to join. Um, at the time, I had completed high school early um, and had done two years at a community college. And so I was just getting my, my AA from college. And uh, it was four months after my 17th birthday. And my dad was just like, just finish college, get the four-year degree, and then join. And I just wasn't having it. I needed to leave, needed something new. Um, at the time, living in a small town in Florida, and no offense to my friends and family that are still there, still there uh, nothing good was going to come my way from, from sticking around. Uh, sure. So decided to go to the recruiter's office myself uh, and tell them I wanted to join. And I wanted something that was like so far out of my wheelhouse that it would basically keep me out of trouble, honestly. I needed something to, to challenge me and, and to keep me occupied and engaged. Because um, at that point, athletics was easy, academics was easy, and uh, I, I, yeah, I wanted something that I had no, no clue about. Uh, so I went in, told them that I wanted to do something in aviation, and they showed me like, you know, all the jobs in aviation. And I was like, you know what? I want to be helicopter door gunner, <laughs> and I want to work on hydraulics on helicopters. So what exactly do both of those things mean? Um, so basically, on the um, from the mechanic standpoint, there's three different categories you can go into. So there's avionics, which is the electronics on the helicopters or on planes. There's flight line, which is basically the engines. And then there's airframes, which is all of the structural maintenance on the aircraft and then all of the hydraulics so the pumps and all sorts of good stuff um and then being a door gunner um is yeah protecting the the helicopters shooting a 50 caliber machine gun out of really big helicopters <laughs> that's awesome yeah i loved it um again had no idea what i was getting myself into but had in my mind that's what i wanted to do um did my, you know, did boot camp. That was, that was a breeze and a half. I, I made it hard because I was just a pain in the ass, stubborn. And even when my drill instructor, drill instructors would tell me to scream, I'd whisper, just being a pain in the ass, 17 year old oh. kid. <laughs> um, so I made it hard on myself really. Um, but yeah, loved it. I uh, did combat training, went through my, like my first school, which is called an A school. Then went through my C school for my, my specialty stuff. And my first duty station was over in San Diego, California. Uh, so lucked out more or less there. Um, and when I hit the fleet, I was the first female that had been in the shop in basically forever, ever period. Um, and it was, I think it was mixed emotions. I think I threw a, an interesting dynamic um, and so it would have been like the good old boys club. Uh, so at first, I don't think they really wanted me there, but I just stayed quiet, did my job, learned my job, um, and you know, and fought tooth and nail to to have air crew wings. And it's pretty pretty rare to have a five foot four, one hundred and fifteen pound lady with blonde hair standing behind a a fifty cal, um, or even turning wrenches for that matter. Um, but yeah, I loved it and. 
did my first deployment to Afghanistan um, with heavy marine helicopter squadrons 465 and 461. And I guess I never realized how much I would love being miserable in a third world country, <laughs> more or less. I, um, I don't know. I, I miss the Marine Corps sometimes, but I also, I, I more so miss having that purpose and having that role of, of being deployed, you know, and going over and protecting people that couldn't protect themselves or, you know, the humanitarian effort side of things, or even the simplicity of it. You know, you go to Afghanistan and you protect your guys, you protect yourself and you come home alive. It's pretty simple. You don't worry about what clothes you're going to wear and what your hair is going to look like, what you're going to eat. Um, none of it. Uh, so there are days that I wake up and I'm like, shit, <laughs> I wish I was still there, but came home safe and sound. Um, from that deployment, um, had some struggles, I guess, initially with some mental and emotional side of things like readjusting to life here, vice being over there. And I was home for all of three and a half months. Um, and my former gunnery sergeant convinced me because I'm not married and I don't have kids, um, that, you know, I needed to go back to Afghanistan and went right back in, um, in January, 2012, uh, did that deployment with heavy Marine helicopter squadron 362. And right off the bat, we, um, it was a it was a night and day comparison to what my first deployment was. Um, really? Yeah, my deployments were polar opposites for whatever reason. But um, we had a helicopter go down and it killed everybody in January of 2012. And uh, I mean, I guess that was kind of that set the standard for that deployment um, for the most part. Uh, it was just wait. How long had you been on that deployment before that happened? Oh, it, we just got there. I mean, we were like slapping hands with our sister unit that we were changing out with. I mean, right. Yeah, that was bad. Uh, so they, yeah, that set the tone, the tone for it. And uh, it was just one thing after the next, really through that deployment. And in the first week of May, my, my grandpa died. Like two weeks later, uh, my grandma died. And it was, it was just a weird deployment altogether from a personal and a professional standpoint. But... um. The helicopter that went down in January 2012, um, it killed all six crew members, and their call sign that night was Irontel 06. So to honor them, we painted our actual aircraft 06 um, in their honor. Uh, the nose landing gear door said, we will never forget Irontel 06. The 50 cals are painted for them. Uh, their names are painted on the sides. I mean, this was their memorial helicopter. And... Um, Fast forward to June 23rd, 2012. Before you fast forward, how did you continue? I mean, I understand like it's it's your job and you went to Afghanistan for a reason, so you have to keep doing it. But was it ever like difficult to see that that's what happened and then, okay, I need to keep going and doing the same thing? Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of bizarre, really. Um, I guess you always know there's a threat of something like that happening, but while you're doing your job and you're in the moment, never phases you. Um, I mean, I, I, I flew hundreds of hours and I don't think it ever crossed my mind once that like, oh man, this helicopter could crash right now. Like, sure. Maybe it crosses your mind when you're standing on the flight line. Like, oh man, that could be a bad day at the office. Um, but while you're like in the moment, it, you're so preoccupied with like 
so many other things that you just you don't have time to do it on. yeah no that makes sense um okay so fast forward to june yeah june 23rd 2012 um aircraft zero one was my aircraft it was the one that i flew on i maintained that like mm-hmm. that was my baby and on june 23rd it was midday I get told I'm going outbound, so I run out to the flight line to go turn up Aircraft 01, and my maintenance officer runs out, and he says, you're not going out on Aircraft 01, you're going out on Aircraft 06, the Memorial helicopter, and uh, which was bizarre because it never flew much, to be totally honest, and uh, said, all right, and turned up the aircraft, and... Um, our call sign that night was Legacy 07, and unfortunately we didn't make it to, to where we were supposed to be going. Um, the helicopter went down. Um, yeah, one of the scarier moments of my life. Um, it all flashes before your eyes. Um, people ask all the time, did you pray? Did, like, what did you do? And really all you can do is count and say, this is gonna suck. <laughs> Um, now you said, let's see, I'm just trying to find my note on it here. There was somebody that you say saved your life. And I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was a medic. It was like an army medic. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, when I reflect on that whole night, there were so many, just not ironic, but just I'm a firm believer in fate now because of my helicopter crash and the series of events that, the series of events and then just the people that were involved. Um, before we went outbound, uh, we we went to the fuel pits just to get fuel, basically. Nothing nothing crazy. And we had a bunch of pallets, what we called triwalls, in the helicopter, and they were all pushed forward. So I was on left gun. My buddy Murphy was on right gun. We were like basically trapped in behind our guns because of the pal- because of the pallets. There are three empty seats on the right side of the aircraft. There are three empty seats on the left side. Well, when we called into the fuel pits to let them know that there was empty seats, they said, perfect, we have three army medics that need to go to where you're going. So we loaded them up, and um, yeah, after the helicopter went down, I had some pretty severe injuries. Um, I mean, I could fit my fist through the lower right side of my face. Um, lost my entire jaw. Every, I mean, the right side of my face was pretty destroyed. Um, and even that injury alone, you can imagine just with severe head trauma, there was a pretty significant um, brain injury. And when I woke up, one of the army medics was in my face, keeping me out of shock. And like, I can just vividly still picture like reading his blood type on his, on the patch that was on his, on his gear. And, uh, I don't know. It was pretty in and out. And I don't think I realized how hurt I was. Um, no, I definitely didn't realize how hurt I was. I was just like, all right, we got to get the hell out of here. Um, so they loaded me up on a stretcher, carried me to the other aircraft that we were flying with and threw me in the back. And one of the other gunners came up to me and said, don't close your fucking eyes because you're not going to open them again. Uh, so I just laid there, stared at a little blue light. Um, it's just like, I'm not going to die without seeing my sister. Um, and I always carried a picture of my mom, my dad, and my sister in my left breast pocket. 
And when they went to cut my flight suit off of me, through like just through this a gnarly fit, you know, just you know, give me my blood shit, give me my picture, and give me the little cross that's in my pocket. And when they wheeled me into the hospital, which is really a makeshift hospital, like tents in the middle of a desert, um, I was hanging on to those. And I saw my gunnery sergeant and my sergeant major walk in, and they were both crying. And that's when I knew I was going home. And that was that was probably the biggest, like, I don't know, the most devastating moment of, of my entire life. Because um, you planned on being, like, career military, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I loved my job. I loved being a Marine. Um, I mean, I was good at being a Marine. I was combat meritoriously promoted to sergeant. And, I mean, I once I got back from that deployment, my wholehearted intention was to go to the drill, fi- drill field, um, be a drill instructor, make Marines, and then I wanted um, to go the officer route and fl- you know, be the pilot instead of just being the gunner. Um, and yeah, when they walked in crying, I just, my heart sank because I knew this was gonna, gonna change things. Um, and they ended up sending me home from Camp Bastion in Afghanistan. Uh, They sent me to Kandahar from there and then to Germany where I stabilized for a little while. And then from Germany to DC and DC to San Diego. And in San Diego, again, (laughs) is where I did a lot of, well, the majority of my recovery. I actually still go back to San Diego to this day um, to get treatment and get my prosthetics and all that good stuff. Um, Yeah, and spent two years at Naval Medical Center San Diego. Fought like hell to stay in. I'm, I think I was lied to for a good chunk of my recovery um, by them telling me that I would be able to stay in and go back to doing the things that I was doing. Um, on one hand, I'm thankful for it because I think it gave me that false hope <laughs> to, to keep fighting. You know, gave me something to work towards and gave me a goal. Um, but yeah, I ended up having to take a medical retirement at the rank of sergeant and... Um, you know, they sent me on my way. You know, I, you know, I still get treated for the brain injury, my vision problems, um, the hearing, my spine and my leg. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just kept pushing and. Didn't your dad say something to you at one point? I remember listening to it in like an interview or something you wrote, um, because you were understandably struggling. Yeah, uh, the first year of my recovery was awful. Um, like I said, it was a blessing that they were telling me that I could stay in, but almost a year to the day of my initial injury, um, I was told that I was unfit for duty, that I basically wouldn't be able to go back to the fleet. I wouldn't be able to go back to, to fighting. I wouldn't be able to go back to being, being active duty, if you will. And, um, I was dev. I, I just destroyed. I thought my purpose was taken from me. You know, at a young age, you know, when I was when I was hurt, I was 21. Um, so at a young age, you lose. You find out you're going to lose your leg. You've lost your career. You're <laughs> losing everything you know. I lost two years of my life to the hospital. Lost my memory. <laughs> you know, um, and I crumbled. I. I'm lucky that I was surrounded by the people that I was surrounded by. Um, but on the one year anniversary of me getting hurt, I decided that I was going to throw in the towel and try to become one of the statistics. I was going to take my own life. And I'm lucky that I had the people around me. Um, 
to find me, A, and then to, um, to get me in the right treatment after they fixed me, I guess we'll put it that way. Um, and my dad came to me and said, you've got to be shitting me. The enemy couldn't kill you and now you're going to do it for him. And kind of when, I mean, that was like the turning point in, in everything. You know, I decided that I wasn't going to be a selfish little shit anymore. Um, that if I couldn't live for myself, then I needed to live for the people who had put so much effort into, into getting me better. Um, or the people like, you know, my family has sacrificed so much, um, especially when I was in the hospital, to, you know, to be by my side and put me first. And I decided that I was going to move forward with my life for the men and the women who didn't come home. You know, I came home uh, broken, but I came home. Um, there's a lot of people that didn't. And I was going to live for them. I was going to live for their families. And then I was just, I was going to live for mine. Um, they deserve it. Even if I didn't think that I deserved it. So, uh, yeah. And then I decided like from that moment on that once I got a taste of what it was like to truly live your life for other people, I realized it's a much bigger circle than just your family or your close friends. Um, I decided that I wanted to continue serving people just in a different way. Um, and so I started getting really involved with different nonprofits um, that, I, that I can you know, fully support and stand behind. And um, I even you know, started my own foundation and got back into school and the degrees that I have are you know, they revolve around, you know, a long-term plan of being able to give back to different communities. Um, so yeah, I, it's been an interesting evolution, um, yeah, from, <laughs> from even just my life of, I mean, joining the Marine Corps at 17 was wild, but even looking at my life from 21 to I'm now 27 and the things that I've been through over, over the course of that, what's seems like a short six years. Yeah, that's uh, not, I, it's just not long at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, like I said, it's... I, I would definitely say I'm a workaholic, but, um, you know, people's smiles are worth far more to me than any dollar amount. And that's really what keeps me moving, keeps me uh, keeps me driven. Because I, I, you know, the, the end-all be-all is I, is I want to truly help other people. I want to inspire people uh, to use more of their potential. I think I've been given... A really unique platform now, and I need to I need to take advantage of it in a way that improves the world. Improves the world, not changes it. I want to sounds cheesy, but I want to make a difference. Oh, I'm right there with you. So, <laughs> so um, to go back just a little bit in regards to. The night that things didn't go so hot and you decided you were done, things obviously shifted a ton after mm -hmm. that. Um, how, like, and I know your, you know, your family and your dad specifically with what he said made a huge impact, but to somebody else who might be going through a similar thing, because it's unfortunately such a common thing um, that, that a veteran doesn't want to be here anymore. Mm -hmm. What kind of advice would you have? You know, I I hate to sound insensitive or I know I lack empathy most of the time, but like the reality is I've been there and I got through it and it's all choices. You absolutely make the choice 
about what your perspective is going to be. You know, I, I could be, I could still be kicking myself in the ass and upset about everything that I've lost, but instead I look at what I've gained and had something so bad not happened to me, I wouldn't have the opportunities that I do now. I wouldn't have had the, the experiences and more importantly, I wouldn't have all of these people come into my life. So it's all a perspective shift. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it, I know getting to that point is difficult, but if you keep your head and your heart in the right place, the possibilities are endless. Um, and I always say it's a six inches between your ears and what's behind your rib cage. And, you know, I, I guess easier said than done in a lot of situations, but, you know, I live my life by that. Um, that determines what you're capable of. I agree completely. <laughs> and I assume the treatments that, can I ask about the treatments? Oh, I'm an open book. Okay, awesome. Um, what kind of what kind of treatments did they do with you to help you actually like have the ability to be even open to that perspective? You know, not to like totally bash on the military uh, mental health system, but you know, there's this misconception. <laughs> yeah. There's, a, there's this misconception that healing takes place within four walls or there, that there's like a special little happy pill that's going to cure everything. And that's not the case. I mean, you absolutely have to be willing to try, mm -hmm. to try and fail. You know, you have to go through the trial and error to figure out what's going to work for you. Um, but the outdoors is what changed everything for me. You know, I, I mean, I still to this day, I still talk to a therapist, um, and I, ha I, you know, I have, I have bad days. I have painful days, just like everybody else. Um, but I go outside. You know, <laughs> it sounds simple, but you know, I being, you know, I, I claim Florida as home. I guess because that's where I spent the most time. Graduated high school and did those two years of college. But I didn't know anything about the mountains. I definitely didn't know anything about snow. <laughs> um, so when I was still in the hospital, you know, I realized what the outdoors could do for me. And I was really fortunate to have somebody approach me and ask me if I had an interest in winter sports. And in the moment, did I? No, but I wanted just to get out of the hospital. Um, I wanted something new. I needed a change of pace. Um, and all it, all it took was taking that, that little leap of faith and just trying something new that gave me all the confidence in the world. So like if people come to me and they say like, how did you do it? I'm like, go do something that you wouldn't, I mean, so far left field that like's never crossed your mind before, take it up and try it. And it'll give you a whole new confidence that you can go out and do anything regardless of an injury or whatever, like circumstances that you're dealing with. And, you know, snowboarding got me, introduced me to a whole new world that I didn't even know existed. Uh, snowboarding introduced me to the mountains and then it introduced me into ice climbing and rock climbing. And that's all I do now. Um, and if you would have asked 17-year-old Kirsty where I thought that I would be a decade later, definitely wouldn't be snowboarding and climbing the biggest mountains in the world. Because you're um, doing stuff now that you never would have done with, like, you know. I'm doing more now, hands down, on one leg than I even dreamt of, of doing on two. You do more on one leg than I do on two legs. <laughs> like, man. I, um... Climbing yeah. outside, if you've never climbed before, climbing outside is so much harder than climbing inside, it's insane. It's definitely, uh, yeah. 
different. And if you add ice <laughs> to it and maybe like, you know, let's just throw the name Everest in there. Yeah. It just makes it to like a whole nother world pretty much. Not even platform is a whole nother world. Yeah. And I guess like when it's all said and done, I'm, I'm thankful that it happened to me. I'm thankful that it happened to me and not somebody else. Um, I believe it was given to me uh, because somebody somewhere thought I could handle it. And even though it was rough, like they knew I could handle it and I was going to get through it. And I'm thankful that all of this chaos in my life has happened. Because um, I look at my life now and it's a pretty special thing. Oh, yeah. You've yeah. definitely done the like epitome of making the most of everything and just flying with it. Like I was reading something on you. I don't know, it was either today or yes, it was sometime recently. Um, and you had said something along the lines of, you know, I, I do this for other people, which you've already said, and then I also do this for the people who can't, for all the people, like you said, who, who didn't make it home because, I don't know, it's just good. Yeah, I, uh, I have Die Living tattooed on my wrist. Um, and I think one of the most important things that I gained from this whole thing um, is how precious a life is, but I gained this whole new perspective on, on how to live life. Um, I mean, there, there'd be no telling what I was doing, like what I would be doing had this not happened anyways, but like, like the day that I do die, I want people to walk up on me and me have a smile on my face. I mean, it breaks my heart that I was going to be selfish enough to let my family see me lose my life at my own hands. And I think about what my, the expression that would have been on my face and what they would have seen then. And like I said, I've been through hell and high water, but now I'm happy. Um, and it took a little while to navigate what that happiness looked like. Um, but yeah, I mean, now, I'm like, when I go out, I'm going to, it's going to be, like, I am going to die living. Um. Exactly. Oh, I love <laughs> that. I really love that. Um, and you also have purpose again. I mean, it sounds like through snowboarding and then in turn through the mountains, you found purpose. Absolutely. I, uh. I've always been a firm believer of paying it forward. Again, my, my very harsh, stern father, he's always been hard on me, <laughs> um, for good reason. But uh, he's only done a few interviews. And one of, the, one of the interviewers looked at my dad and said, you know, are you, you, know, are you proud of your daughter? You know, are you, you know, excited for these things that she has going on? And uh, all he said was, the moment she stops paying it forward, she deserves to have it all taken away. And walks off. And he's told me that for a long time. And um, it's another one of those things that, that I believe and I, and I live by now. You know, I think my purpose in life is, is to now pay it forward and, and give back. Um, because there's a lot of people out there that, you know, I felt like I didn't have that role model when I was in the hospital. And there's a lot of people that maybe don't need a role model, but maybe just somebody to, to be a little bit of hope or to be a beacon of light or to... To give somebody a reason, uh, you know, whether it's a reason to live or even just a reason to keep challenging themselves. You know, I want, I want people to look at me one day and be like, 
fuck Kirsty. I can do it 10 times better. I can be stronger. I can be faster. I can do it better than she did. You know, and right now I'm, I'm doing a lot of things that amputees don't typically do, but it's with that intention is, is, you know what? I don't mind doing the legwork pun intended or doing, you know, navigating the, the difficult stuff to make it easier for people later. If that makes sense. Completely. Um, tell them you like you can do this. This is possible. Yeah, and I mean, well, and one of the things that I'm what I've been doing now is like we've been designing new feet to make this easier for other people. You know, I, I right now the the cramp on foot that you see in some of the pictures of me like climbing Denali and climbing Elbrus and all that, like that was made in a shed by me and some friends. Uh, so you know, like you know, another oh, just cool. like <laughs> yeah, another little avenue from it is. You know, I want to test the prosthetics. I want to design things that are going to work for people. I want to give people the tools um, to the rest of their lives. And I don't mind beating myself up to be able to, to figure out what's going to work for other people. So I know you started with snowboarding, and that's kind of what got you into the mountains and into the snow. But how did you get into climbing, and why, why, is, why climbing, I guess? Well, my whole life, I had done team sports, you know, softball and volleyball. And, um, obviously I think those are extremely helpful and they are definitely a necessity for, for people period. But, um, you know, the sports that I'm doing now, they're sports that no one can do them for me. You know, once I get up a mountain, no one can get me back down the mountain. No one can put one foot in front of the other for me. No one can stand on the snowboard and, and, you know, and operate smoothly or safely. Like it's, 100% 100% me. Um, and I fought for a long time, um, A, to stay out of a wheelchair, but just to be independent. Um, li- even living in the hospital, I had, my mom had to put sticky notes um, in every room to, to remind me what I was doing in each room. So say I went into the bathroom, there was a sticky note for brushing your teeth, taking a shower, going to the restroom, because I, my memory was just so shot. Um, and for basically two years of being in the hospital, like. I had to have somebody with me. Somebody had to be my right hand and quite literally my left leg. Um, And, you know, I didn't want to just live a life where I had to rely on everybody for everything. Um, So these sports really gave me a taste of of that self-reliance and of that independence. And honestly, I just got addicted to it. Uh, I'm like... I'm good at mountaineering right now because I can forget about how bad it sucks. <laughs> I can forget about how awful the last mountain was. Um, but the struggles, they make it that much sweeter at the end. Like climbing these big mountains, you know, you're gone for 30 days at a time and um, it's miserable. There's nothing fun about it. But when you get to the top and you're reminded of how much work you put in, how much you suffered, um, and everything that led up to that point, I mean, there is, so I mean, it's a special feeling. There's no way to really even adequately express what it's like standing on the top of those mounds, especially given my, my circumstances. And that's why I haven't given up. Um, you know, yeah, I climb mountains to raise awareness and fundraise and hopefully inspire people. But there is obviously a, you know, a selfish factor to it too. Um, you know, it makes me feel good to be able to, to say, you know, I still can, I still can regardless of the cards have been dealt. Oh, yeah. I had no idea it was like that mentally in the hospital. Yeah. That's a huge change. Because you didn't 
correct me if I'm wrong, but you didn't have your master's degrees before. So you guys remember I said three master's <laughs> degrees and going for a doctorate. Okay, so please continue. Yeah, you know, it's actually funny uh, that you bring that up. So it's one of the things that really hasn't come to light too much. Um, it's not necessarily that I'm, you know, ashamed of it or anything like that, but people all too often look at me and they're like, holy shit, you're missing your leg and instantly think that that was the hardest part of my recovery. But the reality is the invisible injuries, one of which we just, we've talked about, you know, obviously dealing with the symptoms of PTSD and, and those emotional, um, struggles that I dealt with, like those were the most debilitating for sure. Um, but my brain injury and the residuals of, of that, even now to this day, uh, it's hard. Um, you know, when I was laying in the hospital bed, I had already started my master's degree and then this, you know, the injury happened and, um, I went back to my doctors and said, Hey, I want to apply for tuition assistance and I want to do school while I'm in the hospital. And my doctors damn near laughed in my face. There's like, there's bad idea. You're going to fail your classes. You're going to end up owing your school a ton of money. Um, we highly suggest you don't do it. Well, A, you tell me I can't do something, and then I just, stubbornness kicks in, and I'm like, all right, well, I'm gonna show you. Um, so I went to my speech therapist, and I said, what do we do? How do, how do I figure out how to make sentences? How do I read? Like, let's figure this out, because this is something that I have my heart set on. Um, and she downloaded a program on my computer called Read and Write Gold, um, and it did. It helped me with my word recognition, my word retrieval, a bunch of stuff with the cognitive side of things, um, helped me decipher things on the computer to help me understand, like rephrasing things to help me understand. And I um, ended up finishing that master's in, in the hospital. Which master's was that? Uh, psychology, human behavior. Um, and I will not say I got the best grade point average. Um, and there were a lot of times where I failed a couple classes, scrape bio C's and stuff like that, but I, um, I worked for it, A, but I also think that me staying in school and sticking with it is one of the factors that saved me, um, as far as getting me to where I am now. I think that if I didn't do school and I only did the therapies that they gave me for my brain injury, like cognitive, speech, vestibular, occupational, I don't think it, I don't think my brain would have gotten to the point it is now. Um, so I always go, I, apparently I go against the grain, but like. Well, you also finish what you start. I remember the, oh, I know this is only the second time we've actually seen each other, but the first time I met you at Shoot It Live, you, I don't remember, I think you had, oh, you had just gotten back from Russia actually. <laughs> yeah. And you were exhausted. But you said something that stuck with me. You were you were like, I promised I'd be here and I do what I say I'm going to do. And that's just like more evidence of that. Yeah, I am. Um, your word is gold. Um, you know, be impeccable with your word. Um, and the moment I say I'm going to do it, whether it's I'm telling a doctor I'm going to finish my degree regardless of what they say, or if I tell a friend that I'm going to be at, a, at an event, I'm, I'm going to do it. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's the stubbornness thing or if it's just, you know, yeah, the follow-through is huge. I feel like way too many people, 
in today's day and age, um, I hate to say it this way, but they give up or they throw the towel in too soon. And I don't know. I, that's probably one of the things that I'm most proud of is the follow through. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Why did you choose the degrees you chose? So I have a master's in psychology with an emphasis in human behavior, master's in business admin with an emphasis in finance, and a master's in public admin. Um, and I'm working on a doctorate in education right now. And when you boil them all down, people often think that they're not related in any way, but the reality is people have a huge role in every single one of them. Um, and initially I picked psychology because I did recognize the deficit for military mental health um, and decided I wanted to explore it. I did get accepted for my PhD after that first master's um, and decided that what I wanted to do in psychology had nothing to do with the PhD. Um, so I turned down the PhD for that and continued going to school for the, the business admin side of things. And the reality of the business admin was I... I started to invest in my best friend, basically. She, single mom, she's had a tough fucking life. Um, and yeah, she sat with me every day, brought her son to the hospital every day. And uh, I don't know, she was just, just definitely one of those people that meant a lot to me in my recovery. And I went into the salon that she was working at, at the time, and uh, she was crying. And I asked her what the hell was wrong, and she told me that the people that owned the salon had sold the salon from underneath her, basically, to somebody else for far less than she offered. And um, they said that they couldn't see it go to a friend, and that pissed me right off. So I looked at her, and I said, how much fucking money do you need? And we went and opened businesses. <laughs> but, you know, that was my first exposure business, but it meant more to me being involved in business because now I was able to facilitate somebody else's dreams, but more importantly, she's able to give other people the opportunity to live out their dreams. Um, so we, jo we jokingly in the salon say, you know, we're magic makers, body shakers, dreamers, and all this stuff. And that's the reality of business. Um, and I want to continue being able to invest in other people. You know, I have friends that are artists that I've invested in. I have friends that wanted to create a TV show that we invested in and, you know, I've been able to invest in real estate and provide opportunities in that way. And I'm working on opening a business for my dad now. So my dad doesn't have to work for anybody else ever again, hopefully. Um, so again, it still boils down to people and business. And then with public admin, um, I wanted to get involved in communities. And I feel like there's so much corruption in politics right now that I wanted to figure out how to develop programs that would actually help the people. Um, whether it's a statewide thing, who knows, maybe one day it'll be a nationwide thing, but like help the people directly in the communities that I'm involved in. And um, yeah, I fell in love with program development and what we had going on there. And again, like the programs introduced me to people that I would have never been able to meet and helped me create solutions for people that are dealing with homelessness or people that are dealing with obesity. Um, and actually, ironically, my final project for my master's in public admin was how to treat the opioid epidemic. 
um, especially in the veteran community, because obviously in the hospitals, they like to dump pills down everyone's throats. And I honestly believe that's why our suicide rate is as high as it is. Um, so when the project was all said and done, I actually created a CBD oil um, that, depending on when this comes out, I'll go ahead and tell you, it's the first of its kind. Um, it uses a chaga extract, so the mushroom chaga. There's a ton of benefits from that alone. But then we're also using glacier water. We're the only ones that are allowed to harvest glacier ice to use in the CBD. I'm pretty stoked on this thing right now. Yeah. Um, but my portion of the proceeds or you know what I make off of it is going to go back into creating programs at the VA to give people the CBD um, instead of the opioids and the narcotics and everything. So uh, that was a long-winded answer to your no, question. That was such a good <laughs> answer. Um, wow. So they, they all boil down to people and some spider web effect, I guess. But oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and then, you know, I, I my school recognized the fact that I've clearly spent a lot of money at this school. <laughs> um, so they actually awarded me a scholarship for my doctorate. And, um, That's great. Yeah. Um, and at first I was like, no way. I can't do this. Like I've already done so much school. Um, and then I thought about it and I started to, to dive into like, okay, well, what are the options with a doctorate? And decided that I wanted to get involved in education um, so that when this crazy mountaineering fascination fades... Um, and I actually settle down and sit, you know, sit in one place long enough. Um, you know, I want to get involved in the education system. I think there's a huge flaw in, in our country right now. You know, we have all the resources in the world to be able to, to truly educate people. And we don't. We haven't. Um, you know, I think some of the highest paid people should be the teachers. Because without teachers, we don't have doctors. We don't have lawyers. We don't have cops. And we don't have, you know, all the other, you know, crucial elements of our society. And, um, yeah, I want to... I want to get this doctorate, and, and I want to get involved um, at a different level, uh, in a different way later. <laughs> That's so cool. That's so cool. I'm actually really so you asked about the education or my school or whatever. Um, it's one of the things that I stay pretty quiet about most of the time, um, but one of the things that I am pretty proud of because it's not going to school to rack up student loans and then work a job that doesn't mean anything to me it's I'm cool with going into debt <laughs> like to learn all of these things to to use it again to pay it forward to help people it's a really big deal and it's incredibly important um for a long time I felt I felt guilty about having so many different interests and it's like okay why can't I just focus on like one thing like a normal person but the more people I talk to the more I, I realize how like Almost abnormal, that is. Yeah. <laughs> to just focus on one thing. Yep. Um, so, slight change here. I want to go back to the mountaineering for a second. Yeah. Because I know you're going for all seven summits. And we just talk a little bit about that? Because that's so unbelievable to me. Yeah. Um, well, so obviously, like I said, the introduction to the mountains was snowboarding and then it just evolved over time. Um, but my first of the big mountains, if you will, um, was Kilimanjaro in March of 2017. And it's the highest point in Africa. And I did that in support of the nonprofit called The Water Boys. And we ended up raising $150,000 for clean water. And that was really just the start. Like 
I already loved the mountains, already liked climbing and all of that good stuff. But then it was like the, the light bulb went off that there was more to it. There, there could be more to it. Um, so I decided that I was going to dedicate nonprofits behind each climb. Like I never want the climbs to be like, I am Kirsty, hear me roar, like me beating on my chest saying like, look at what I can do. Like I want there to be heart and I want there to be meaning behind it. Um, so yeah. And I, and, and the same thing, like, I don't want to pigeonhole myself to only helping one community. You know, I, I do love the veteran community and it will realistically come first and have a huge piece in my heart, but I want to help people across the board. Um, so obviously the water boys clean water. Um, then we did Karstens, the highest point in Oceana, which was with the Heroes Project, a veteran service organization. Um, helped raise money for them. And then Denali uh, was in support of a nonprofit called Building Homes for Heroes. Um, they build specially adapted homes for catastrophically injured veterans, first responders, terrorist attack victims, um, and so on. And... Um, the one I just most recently did, the highest point in Europe, located out in Russia, uh, was in support of a nonprofit called Glam for Good, and it supports and empowers young women and girls um, in underserved populations and in the big city areas, if you will. And uh, the the only reason I really know who they are is they reached out to me after my injuries, and they're like, "How do we get involved with you? Do you know anything about fashion or glamour?" And I'm, no, no, I don't know anything about it. Um, and they showed me what they did because it was just something that I knew nothing about. I was so far again out of my wheelhouse that I was actually kind of interested in it. And, um, when I went down to hurricane Harvey, I invested my savings, drove my ridiculous monster truck down there and was pulling people out of their flooded homes and busting my windshield out and trashing this brand new truck of mine. And, um, Glam for Good saw what I was doing and they reached out and they said, how do we help the teachers? And ended up outfitting thousands of teachers to get them back in the schools down um, in Hurricane Harvey. So I instantly knew that like I wanted to help Glam for Good. Yeah, no kidding. And then they turned around and did it in Puerto Rico when one disaster struck there and yeah, so I was introduced yeah, to like them. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, so I, anyways, like, you know, I, I want to support the nonprofits that do what they say they're doing, that are making a difference in the lives of people that, that need it and deserve it. Um, and then to really to legitimize the project a little bit more and to have my own 501c3, I created the Kirstianos Foundation, um, which really just, like I said, it legitimizes what we're doing. Um, it, gives re- it gives people, specifically corporations, um, a reason, yeah, ultimately a tax break, um, you know, to, to put their funds into something. And no one, no one from my nonprofit takes a salary. You know, I have three other board members and myself. We all work as full-time unpaid staff, and all of the donations go right back into these these deserving nonprofits. And we're getting to the point now where I'm super stoked to be able to say we're going to be able to do individual scholarships, hopefully soon. Um, yeah, so if you're listening and you want to help, do that. <laughs> but And then, yeah, we just want to provide education, opportunity, and healing in the outdoors. You know, you asked what therapies worked. The, out, the outdoors work. <laughs> um, so how do people, like, how do people contribute? How do they find out? Yeah, no, uh, the Kirstianus Foundation. Um, you can you can Google it or just go to the website, kirstianusfoundation.org or .com, and then on social media. Um, you know, we're always, always looking for people to help raise awareness, and then, um, yeah, donate. You can donate directly online. Um, 
yeah, in any way anybody wants to help, you know, we got open arms. Yeah, even the, even the little things matter. So, so what's what's next for you? I mean, I know you still have you're working on your doctorate right now. You still have sev- several more summits to get to, and you have a lot of things in the works. Yeah, uh, I like to stay busy. Keeps you out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, definitely focus on the doctorate, um, and then. Uh, Christina's foundation takes up quite a bit of time, but my next climb's super, super stoked. Um, so my next climb is going to be the highest point in South America. Um, it's down in Argentina called Aconcagua, and it's going to be in support of the nonprofit Merging Veterans and Players, or Merging Vets and Players, and um, super stoked. I, there was a gentleman that was involved in the program, MVP, um, and he calls himself the Veteran Hiker on social media, and I had heard about him. I was like, you know what? I want to go meet this dude. So met him down um, at MVP in LA and saw him around a handful of times and he finally came to me and he's like, you know what, I have a 14 year old daughter. She looks up to you and um, you know, I just love what you're doing and you know, I like to hike mountains. You know, can I hike with you one day? Yeah, fuck yeah, of course. So we go down to, or we're in Southern California and we go up to this mountain called Mount Baldy, 10,000 foot mountain and I have a soft spot for when grown ass men cry. Um, but you know, he sat there, his name's, his real name is David. Um, he sat there and he watched me and he, he just cried. And he was like, Kirsty, like people don't see like how much effort, like how hard this is for you to climb these mountains and like what goes into this for you. He's like, I'm, you know, I'm blown away. And I think I realize what I'm doing is a big deal, but I don't think I realize how big of a deal it is to other people. And, um, I saw in that moment, you know, hiking this mountain in Southern California, how much the outdoors meant to him, but also how much it meant to him just seeing the struggles that somebody else is going through, I guess, basically. Like I said, it puts things into perspective. And um, I had the idea that I wanted to surprise David um, with the opportunity to go climb uh, Aconcagua down in South America with me. And... Again, showed up randomly at, you know, one of the one of MVP sessions in LA and at the end of it I approached David and said, you know, I, I wanted to come climb a twenty three thousand foot mountain with me. And again, he sat there and cried and um that's what this is all about, you know, like being able to, to give the gift that I love so much to other people. Um that's a big deal to me. Anyway, so long story short, he uh he, he accepted and, you know, it means a lot to me to be able to like get him the gear to continue doing this for a long time, well past the climb in South America and to be able, you know, to, to take him to another country, to be able to like put him on a real fucking mountain. Um, it's a, it's a really cool feeling. So I'm super stoked for the climb in January and, um, after we get back in February, I'll have a little bit of a, a little bit of a break, and again, super proud to say that I have worked my ass off to take my and saved up like legitimately since I was in the Marine Corps. Um, I uh, been saving up to take my family on like our first real family trip, vacation, if you will, and um, finally saved up enough money. Going to take the family, my mom, my dad, my sister, who deserve it more than anything, um, to Ireland for St. Patrick's Day. Oh, that's going to be so fun. Super stoked about that. So give my family a trip of a lifetime. Come home for a week and some change. 
And then I head to Nepal um, to climb the highest point in Asia, the highest point in the world, better known as Everest. And I have the intention on being the first amputee to snowboard it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Busy. <laughs> you are, you're just, you're incredible. You were so incredible. Well, that That's means, amazing. Well, that means a lot to me. No, I just, I mean, I really appreciate you, you being here today and just letting me interview you. I just think your story is so inspiring. Your story continues to be so inspiring with everything you do and then the reasons behind why you do it. And that's, that's really why I wanted you to be on my podcast because, yeah, so thank you. No, thanks for having me. I am, I'm stoked about it. Um... Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm glad we can make it happen. I'm glad Salt Lake happened. (laughs) Oh, God, me too. Um, To continue to hear more stories about other incredible people, um, find the Deviation Podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Instagram and Facebook, or just go online and Google the Deviation Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.